0: That's definitely one of the great scenes from the cross where Christ calls on John to uh, take his mother and to make him, make her his own. And uh, it shows the love of Christ in the most tender way. And uh, appreciate that being brought to our minds this morning. Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we uh, turn now to the scenes that we remember today. We pray, Father, that you would... Give us, by your word and your spirit, a fresh view of familiar things. We look to you, Lord, to bless us and to feed us as your people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So juxtaposition. That's a word that we don't use every day. In fact, it may be a word that you don't plan to use any day. But uh, it does have an important place in our vocabulary. Uh, It comes to us from Latin through French and into the English language, and its meaning is really simple enough. It is an act or instance of placing close together or side by side, especially for comparison or contrast, various things. It is placing two or more things close together, side by side. So children, to think about what this word juxtaposition means, you might think about somebody putting a turkey and a peacock side by side. And one of the things they want to do is see what makes them the same because they're both birds and then what makes them different, why one is a turkey and the other one might be a peacock. The events memorialized on this day, commonly called Palm Sunday, uh, form a tapestry of profound matters that stand in juxtaposition to one another. that is side by side, and when you look at them side by side, they really open your eyes to what is actually taking place. I think it's fair to say that no adequate comprehension of the events is possible without at least some understanding of this reality, of these comparisons. And again, children, what we're saying is that you can't really see what's happening on Palm Sunday unless you see these wonderful contrasts and comparisons. What Appears and what it means and how it stands in in contrast to other things. So, to begin, sort of this study of the juxtapositions we see here, we want to begin with the city and the village. The events of the day begin in Bethany, which is an unremarkable suburb of Jerusalem. This village usually is just a place to pass through. On your way to the great and holy city of Jerusalem. In other words, it's not usually a destination. No one would say, Oh, I'm going up to Bethany today. Um, it's not just where you would go, you would pass through it. Um, but overnight, this destination, this city, I should say, this village has become a destination. And here's our first comparison the capital with the temple. And all the ceremony and all the grandeur that surrounds it is usually the center of interest at Passover. But suddenly, this little village becomes an attraction. And the question is, well, why is that? Why has this place that's usually just the place to pass through suddenly become important? And we get our answer in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and verse 9. And we're going to sort of be flowing or or pulling off of our thoughts off of john chapter 12 but we'll also be looking at other records of this but we read in john chapter 12 and verse 9 now a great many of the jews knew that he that is jesus was there and they came not for jesus sake only but that they might also see lazarus whom he had raised from the dead So here we get our answer. Why is now suddenly this village such an important place? Well, it's an important place because Jesus is there who raised Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus, who was dead, is now there alive again. And so people are coming out of the city of Jerusalem to to visit this, this village, to see Jesus, to see Lazarus. And, of course, people on their way into Jerusalem are stopping in Bethany to see this site as well. Jerusalem may have the temple, the priests, and the Roman governor, even King Herod. But in Bethany, you will find Jesus and Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And we know that a great many people were making their way into Jerusalem by caravans and troops for the Passover, and that there was a heightened awareness about Jesus among those people. If you look back at the 11th chapter of John and verses 55 and 56, we see just what was going on in the city at the time. So this is John chapter 11, verse 55, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So this gives you an idea of the interest that there was for Christ boiling here in the city of Jerusalem at this particular moment. The people were wondering if he was going to come. Uh, they knew what he had done. Uh, they were wondering if he was going to come on to the city. The priests and the chief priests and the Pharisees had ordered his seizure. And so there's all this interest that heightens the uh, the attention of the people. And when they hear that Jesus is that nearby, in Bethany, just a few miles away, uh, that draws them to this village. I don't know if it's because this happened so long ago, or if it's because faith burns so low. But the opening events of this day seem to strike most people today, I think, even many Christians, Underwater. but let me put it this way do you not suspect that if any of you had enjoyed your breakfast this morning with someone you loved who had been raised from the dead you might be a little keyed up this morning when you got here what do you think Do you think it would just be a ho-hum another day back going up to the church? Or would it be something where you couldn't wait to come and and tell us or at least explain or try to explain what was going on? And especially if you had had that breakfast, not only with the one risen from the dead, but with Jesus who did the raising. Think you'd be a little excited? I, I think we would be. Well, the truth is, beloved, you did have that kind of breakfast this morning. You did. Every one of you who is resting in Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You've been raised by him. And on the resurrection day, your flesh will be raised too. Paul refers to this resurrected state. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, when he says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And are we enjoying this resurrected state in the presence of Christ? We are. Where two or three are gathered together in his name. There he is in the midst of them. And recognized or not, he's been with you all morning from before you awoke until right now. So you have this first, this contrast between the village and the city. Then you have the contrast between the people and their leaders. It's even more pronounced because we're told that the people in general came to see Lazarus and Jesus. They came up to the city. Those who had heard about it, those who were interested in it, came up to see Jesus and and this Lazarus who was raised from the dead. But the chief priests... And the Pharisees remained in Jerusalem for a much different reason. And verses 10 and 11 of John chapter 12 tell you that reason. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And when they say also... They mean Jesus and Lazarus. So you have three reactions here to this resurrection of Lazarus from the dead and the presence of Jesus and, and Lazarus in and Bethany. And they're all evident on the morning when Jesus rides into Jerusalem to keep the Passover. You have belief that leads to saving grace among some. You have curiosity that unless brought to something more by saving grace will just melt away. And you have a jealousy driven by sin that seeks to destroy the truth by putting the man rescued from the grave back into the grave. Those are the three reactions you have. A belief, a confidence that... that there's something here there's something that we need to grasp there's something that we need to understand here who is this jesus and what has he done and how has he done it and that belief leads to to true faith by grace you have some who are just there because they're curious they want to know they want to see the sight. they want to know what what happened and unless something more happens by the grace of God that will eventually melt away and get lost in the noise of the time but then you have this jealousy that's driven by sin no wonder that Jesus said of the Pharisees if God were your father you would love me for I proceeded forth and came from God nor have I come to myself come of myself but he sent me Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. They were of their father, the devil, and the murderous spirit of their heart against Lazarus and against Jesus is evident of it now why other testimony in the gospel makes it clear that the Pharisees took active part in the opposition and death of Jesus John only mentions here in John chapter 12 the chief priests made up mostly of Sadducees and they had their own even more important reason to see Lazarus permanently entombed. And that reason was they denied the doctrine of the resurrection. So if you say there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead, and you have a man walking around Bethany who was dead and is now resurrected, that's a problem for your theology, isn't it? And so the way to answer that, to solve that problem, is to put him back in the grave, and, and that'll fix the problem, right? Jesus had made the, the claim that he was the resurrection and the life and that whoever believes on him will never die. Lazarus was the living, physical illustration of the reality of that claim, of that truth. So to protect their false doctrine, it was not only necessary to put Lazarus back into his grave and to make sure he stayed there, and how were you going to make sure he was going to stay there? by putting Jesus in his grave too because he was the problem Lazarus had no hope of getting up out of his grave if it weren't for Jesus but Jesus is the one who raised him so keep Lazarus where you want him in the tomb but Jesus in one too and so that's what's behind their plotting and their planning They have the contrast between the people. They want to understand. They want to see this Jesus. They want to see this one risen from the dead. It's it's something that extends to them an idea of hope and expectation. But you have the leaders of the people, the spiritual leaders of the people, who only want to see death. Death once again for Lazarus and death for Jesus. Now, we don't have time to highlight every contrast in the events uh, of this day. So I'll just try to touch on a few more, and you can perhaps later in the day look for more for yourselves. But you have the appearance and reaction next. So I want to point out to you the appearance and the reaction that is uh, sort of, when you put them side by side, it forms quite a contrast. So think about the young donkey that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on. In John chapter 12, verses 14 through 15, it says this, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, John barely refers to the animal because the other gospel writers have really filled in the details there for you. And they explain the way the animal was recruited. And so we go to Luke chapter 19, for example. And in the 19th chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 29, we read this. And it came to pass when he that is Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. Now I want you to think about this preparation by Christ of this donkey's colt to use to ride into the city. Obviously, Jesus could have ridden into the city on any animal he chose. Knowing who he was. And knowing the authority that he had, he could have asked for Pilate's private horse. And he could have had it to ride in with. And wouldn't that have been dramatic? If he had said, you go on down to to Pilate's, not pirate, Pilate's (laughs) uh, uh, stable. You go in there and you say, the Lord wants Pilate's horse. And do you think he would have been given up just like this donkey, Colt? Surely it would have. He could have called for some exotic creature out of the forest. What if Jesus had come riding into Jerusalem on a lion? Wouldn't that have been astounding? Wouldn't that have drawn the lion of Judah riding in on the back of a lion? He could have done that if he wanted to. He was the king of kings and the lord of lords. But he chose a donkey. A donkey's colt. In Psalm 50, verses 10 and 11, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, says the Lord, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. So he could have done anything, but the word, the prophetic word of God, required that it should be this donkey's colt. Now, one would think, that to make clear his majesty and his glory the savior would have chosen a noble beast and yet he chose an animal that makes him for all intents and purposes look foolish look foolish have you ever seen a full grown adult on a donkey have you ever witnessed that Um, one of the things that used to be very popular was something called donkey basketball and schools would raise funds by having uh, donkey basketball games and they'd bring donkeys on, all the teachers would get on the back of donkeys and the students would just howl at this comical scene of of these uh, teachers on the back of donkeys with their legs almost touching the ground this is a donkeys cult on which no one has ever before ridden. So it's not the kind of cult that has a good steady gait or anything like that. It's just a baby donkey, a young donkey. So he chooses an animal that under all normal circumstances would make him look foolish. And yet, despite the nature of the scene, Jesus appears to everyone as majestic. As majestic. No one's laughing. No one's mocking. They're they're in awe of this one riding on this donkey's colt. And when we think about it, we can't think of a more noble scene than this one where Jesus, according to the scriptures, comes riding into Jerusalem on this day. They pull down branches to throw in the way and they wait and to wave in celebration and and to express their joy at the sight of this one riding into Jerusalem. Later, when he enters the city, the adulation is so dynamic and it's so intimidating for those who hate him that they ask him to please just silence the voices of these people, particularly the voices of the children. And how does Jesus reply? He answers and says to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So do you see the contrast? A sight that should have produced giggling and mockery is instead so powerful in the moment that if human beings would have been able to be silent, the very lower creation would have burst out in response to that silence. But why? I think, beloved, not just to supply the praise being denied by the silence of men and women but I think also as an indictment against that silence I suspect that Jesus has the words of his prophet Habakkuk in mind here Habakkuk in chapter two of his prophecy says this woe to him who covets evil gain for his house that he may set his nest on high that he may be delivered from the power of disaster Remember now, the high priests, the the whole cleansing of the temple is bringing to an end at that moment the high priests' activities in selling and bartering and increasing their own wealth. We talked this morning earlier in Sunday school about how Jerusalem was a city of palaces. Some of those palaces belonged to the high priests who were Unbelievably wealthy. Verse 10. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed or establishes a city by iniquity. I think there's a sense of judgment here. That If these people don't cry out in acknowledging me, the very stones of the ground will cry out against them, an indictment against them. There's something else to take note of as you survey this part of the scene. Obviously, Jesus is able at any time to unveil his majesty if he wishes to. And he could have opened the eyes of all in an instant and filled them with the awe of his divine splendor and dignity. And here the veil is just lifted partially for just a short time. But the reaction of the people is, is unbelievable in response to the display of his majesty. And I believe that those who try to write this off as just the excitement of the occasion, are not fully Appreciating the revelation of what is taking place here as this adulation goes forth. And yet, another point of contrast we see that Jesus was entering Jerusalem on this day as the Messiah, but those who opposed him were not interested in redemption, but their own self righteousness and their own gain. There's another contrast the saddle and the carpet on which Jesus rides. It's not a fancy device, the saddle, or a roadway made smooth and covered with fancy rugs by slaves. His saddle and his carpet are made up of common homespun cloth from the people, from just the people. In Matthew chapter 21 verses 7 and 8 they brought the donkey and the colt laid their clothes on them and set him on high or on them excuse me and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. These are just common things and this wasn't exclusive to Jesus it happened at other times but it added to the majesty of the scene because while they weren't impressive in the eyes of the proud and the wealthy, these clothes that were used as a saddle and these clothes that were laid in the roadway. They represented the high regard of the people because it's not so for us so much. But for people at this time, their clothing was one of the most expensive things they owned. That was one of the things that cost them the most to provide for themselves and for their families. And here they were taking these costly items and they were spreading them out in honor to the Lord Jesus. In Psalm 70, verses four through five, it says, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let the Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. And the poor and needy are the ones who are throwing their their garments in the Savior's way. And what they intended by the gesture was embodied in what they said as they laid that carpet down. They took branches of palm and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Many spread their clothes on the road, Mark says, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed after cried out, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. All this homage, Jesus gladly received. And in doing so, he further raised the jealousy and the hatred of his enemies. In the case of the Pharisees, what did they use their clothing for? Do you remember? The Pharisees used their clothing to humble you and exalt themselves. Have you noticed the tassels I have? You don't have tassels like that, do you? That's because you're not quite as holy as I am. If you were holy like me, you'd have tassels at the foot of your garment too. But you're not quite as good as I am. They used their clothing to exalt themselves and to humble the people. But the people used their garments to humble themselves and to exalt their king, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 29, verses 18 through 19, you read, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And that's what you're seeing here, beloved, is the, the poor among men lining the streets, praising and giving glory to Jesus as he enters the city. One more point of contrast relates to the site of Jerusalem itself. Luke tells us, and we made reference to this in Sunday school this morning. Luke tells us in Luke nineteen forty-one. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. We mentioned in Sunday school this morning how Jerusalem was a city city of walls and palaces. And you see how thorough the destruction is going to be here? When this judgment of Jerusalem is finished, there won't be a stone upon a stone. All of that beautiful city with its palaces and its towers and its walls will be laid flat. It was a magnificent city when Jesus entered it. As we've observed in the past, in the eyes of many people, it was second only to Rome. For its beauty and grandeur, Jerusalem. Herod the Great had gone to great lengths to make it the jewel of his crown, and that was reflected in the city. To enter here in the minds of the people was to draw near to heaven itself. We get something of the impression it made when we read passages like Mark chapter 13 and verse 1, where Jesus has come out of the temple, and uh, when he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, See what manner of stones and what buildings we have here. Jesus, look how grand all of this is. Of course, you know how Jesus responds to that. He says, of course, take this city and this temple and destroy it, and in three days I'll raise it from the, from the dead. But the impression of the disciple at the moment is, look at this, look at what we have. And clearly the disciple intended that Jesus should be duly impressed with the sight and the view of the city coming around the bend, however, in the road from the Mount of Olives, as the city opened up to the sight of all who were with him on that journey. You could look down into the temple grounds from there and see the activity. You could see people streaming out of the gay travelers descending up the mountain, um, or ascending up the mountain, and those who were just descending. Um, millions were coming into the city it was a beehive of activity it should have been a jewel in the eyes of all and it was to the people but to the Savior it was a dying city that was rejecting, rejecting even while he was approaching with seeming acceptance the Messiah it would soon be a burning heap of ruin soaked with the blood of the people who would not see what was plainly before them. Luke tells you that Jesus wept here. And it's one of only two times in the scripture that we're told that Jesus wept. The other was, of course, at Lazarus' tomb. Both were expressions of grief and sorrow. But this scene sets in juxtaposition, beloved, Christ's humanity and his divinity. He cries over the city as a man. He speaks of his judgment as God. The message begun here. As he makes the turn, the road that overlooks the city is finished later when he says to his disciples and the multitude, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are centire. How often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I also want to just say a word about the authority of Christ and the weakness of the leaders. Though there's much that could be said about this contrast, I just want to mention this. Everything about the story of this whole day highlights this contrast. From the people going out to see Jesus, even though the leaders have banned it, and they've called for them to arrest him if they find him. Instead, they make a public display of their honor for him. To the plea for Jesus to silence the people. To his cleansing of the temple. It's obvious that Jesus can do whatever he pleases. And that they can do nothing about it. What A tremendous contrast. There's Jesus who seems the one to be the one in the weakened position. But he has all power at this moment. Watching this happen, the Pharisees say among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. We can't do anything. We can't stop this. So there's that tremendous contrast between the weakness of the leaders and the power of Christ. But it all comes down to the glorious expectation and the seemingly tragic end. As the day closed, expectations were high, both among the people and among Christ's disciples. It's after this that they begin talking about, well, uh, which one of us shall be greatest when the kingdom comes? We're here, this is it. You saw what happened. You saw how the people were just sold out to Christ and how he could do whatever he chose to do. So which one of us will be greatest when that happens? Which one of us can sit in his right hand or on his left hand and so on? If this future was what today was like, well, what will tomorrow be? Jesus, the one who raises the dead, is now in the city of Jerusalem. He's not only defied the chief priests and Pharisees, but he's also cleansed the temple of the traffickers and declared the temple a house of prayer for all people. If that's happened today, what's tomorrow going to be like? Look at what Jesus did today. Look at the reception he received today. Tomorrow has got to be even greater. What but great days can possibly lie ahead? But it wasn't to be, was it? Instead, things would begin spiraling down. And in the end, the most humiliating, in the most humiliating and awful way imaginable, this week ends. In the way pictured for you by the elements here on the Lord's table before you this morning. The same Jesus, adored and celebrated today, would be mocked, brutalized, tortured, and cruelly executed by crucifixion by the end of the week. And herein lies the contrast, probably the greatest contrast, because that which seemed to be the triumph of evil over good ended up being the ruin of evil. That which seemed to ruin all hope was actually the ground of all hope. Many had hoped that he would have proved his majesty and authority by doing to Rome what he'd done to the temple. And this they thought that they would see his divinity but all along, as this day unfolded, he was showing it in ways that they weren't used to looking for. And in the end, he would submit to the thing that seemed to have the prospect of forever obscuring his majesty, but which proved instead the seal of his majesty. In Philippians 2.7, Paul writes, But Christ made himself of no reputation And finally, there's one last contrast to mention, one juxtaposition to take note of, and it has to do with all the earthly turmoil and all the agitation of our present day. It all seems so important. It all seems so vital. It seems like it must dominate our attention, and it has to consume our thoughts. We have to go to bed thinking about it. We have to get up in the morning thinking about it. As if these were the really important days and these things going on in our world today, the most vital issues in human history. Beloved, a day is rushing down upon you and me when no one will care one bit about any of these things that are so mind- and time-consuming right now. The only vital question, the thing that will occupy every mind, is the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he rides into our world, not on a donkey's foal, but when he comes, when a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven says, Hallelujah! salvation and glory and honor and power belongs to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. When again they say, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. When the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down and worship God, sitting on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah! Because then a voice will come from heaven, from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And John says, I heard then, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints then he said to me blessed right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true sayings of god and i fell at his feet to worship him but he said to me see that you do not do that i am your fellow servant and of your brethren who gave the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, says John, I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, Things that are happening in our world today are nothing compared to this day. And the important thing for you this morning is to know that you are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb because your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of men and women and children. That's the thing that should be on our minds. That's the thing that should occupy our hearts. That should be with us this morning as we now move to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the memorial of this day, for the contrast that we see in this scene. And Lord, we pray that we would see clearly the contrast of our own day. Men are occupied so much in their hearts and minds with the trivial, well, there are such vital things at hand. Lord, what a blessing it is to sit this morning at the table of our Savior and to know that we have a place at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Lord, bless us as we eat together now and may way we have our eyes on that day that lies ahead, that glorious and blessed day when we will forever be with the Lord, where we will rejoice in the presence of our Savior and dwell in peace with him who gave himself for us. We thank you, Lord, for our redemption. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. And we ask you to receive that thanks and that love. In Jesus' name, amen.